Welcome to Charla Cultural, a little chat about culture from Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. I'm Carla Lamb. And I'm Adriana E. Ramirez. And today we are peeling oranges with Ada Limon. Ada Limon is the author of the poetry collections The Carrying, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry, Bright Dead Things, a finalist for the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award, Sharks in the River, Lucky Wreck, and This Big Fake World. She earned an MFA from New York University and is the recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the New York Foundation for the Arts, the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center, and the Kentucky Foundation for Women. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, including the New Yorker, Harvard Review, and Barrow Street. She lives in Lexington, Kentucky. We'll start with a clip of Ada Limon's performance at City of Asylum from April 2nd, 2001, celebrating Ada Limon and the 15th anniversary of her debut collection, Lucky Wreck, from Autumn House Press. We'll transition to an interview Adriana just did with Ada, some conversation from the both of us, and finally, we'll get to what we're reading and some thoughts for the road. Welcome. I'm so excited. I know, I know. This was such a wonderful event, and I I love getting to both, you know, reconsider her very, very first book of poetry, Lucky Wreck, and also to get to hear, you know, what she sounds like in a collection that comes out 15 years later. So I'm very excited um, to get to hear a little bit from the supremely talented Ada Limon. This book is incredible and having like that retrospective, you know, imagine like 15 years down the road for you, for you and your book or uh, your writing. I love uh, what Ada says in her introduction, just how terrifying it was to, for herself, you know, as the author of these poems of this collection, to not have looked at it for so long and then, and then like shutting down the inner critic of like, oh, what was I doing with that line break 15 years ago? (laughs) (laughs) Jammed is the worst. Uh, All right, well, on that note, should we listen to Ada Limon? Let's listen, yes. I'm going to start with the first poem of this book. Uh, Thank you all for being here. Uh, This is such a joy. And I have to admit, I was really nervous today, um, all day, because 15th edition, 15th anniversary edition feels, I don't know, it feels special and beautiful and um, completely bizarre that that much time has passed. And in some ways, I feel like the same person. In some ways, I feel like 50 years has passed. So this is a poem... um, I don't even know what to say about this poem. This is how it begins. First lunch with relative stranger, Mr. You. We solve the problem of the wind with an orange. Now we've got the problem of the orange. Jimmy once said, do you get along with everyone as good as this? I did not know how to say yes. In Albuquerque, yes is hard slash easy slash look a roadrunner. You there across the table could be my opposite of enemy. I do not want eight babies. Are you hooked on height? I'm trying to stop myself from telling you about the time I lost my passport and so thought of killing myself, identity being an important instrument of my behavior. I saved myself by thinking I'd write a novel and then fell asleep in the closet. It's called the novel last things for Lala. It is not called the contradictory nature of hangers. What is the punctum? Out of which limb will you grow? 
Jimmy had two sons, nice ones, two taller than me. I bought them food and listened to ICP in the 65 Chevy. I was 53 years old. That was one year older than Jimmy. I've never been to where you live, but that doesn't mean I should move there. I get attached to rocks. At the tone, the time will be, let's never die. We've just met. Should we move to Ensenada or should I just borrow a pen? I could tie your shoelaces together and play king of the mountain. I brought a lot to the table. You've brought an orange. I'd rather sit a kiss than you would. My fist is like a kiss. I want a shirt that says, kiss me or I'll cut you. I want to start every sentence with, let me tell you something, mister. Mister who smells like yellow. Mister who has too many pockets. Mister who is a mister times two. Mister who misses and then gets sad. Mister whose lunch I'm having. What to do with the problem of the orange? Let me tell you something, mister. You've got to peel it. I haven't read that poem in so long. You've got to peel it. Yeah, Carla, you've got to peel it. I love that line. And I just like love the way she says it and the way she like tells it. It has this like attitude and this tone and this edge. Ada does so many amazing leaps and transitions. And oh, then yeah. I'm, I'm over here like decoding the poem. Like there's so many <laughs> images. In my training, like as a poet, I was definitely told to like just read what's on the page or like not assume anything of like between the lines, you know? Yeah, I mean, a lot of readers tend to do. I would say there's so many things that are so playful about this poem, yeah. right? Um, you know, there are moments that catch you off guard, right? Like mm-hmm. I was 53 years old. That's one year older than Jimmy, right? As you have to stop and go, oh, who is the I in this poem? And is it a stable I or is it this conversation that's happening, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, it's called First Lunch with Relative Stranger Mr. You, but it's it's also like, you know, is it giving you a transcript? Is it giving you a summary? When does it shift? When is it, you know, the the narrator I? And when is it the person that, sh- you know, they're ostensibly talking to? Um, and then, the, you know, there are little gems like, you know, I bought them food and listened to ICP in the 65 Chevy, which insane clown posse. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, like, I was not I expecting a juggalo yeah. reference <laughs> in a poem <laughs> by Ada Limon, you know? And so yeah. there are these delightful little gems. And yeah, you know, I sort of love the abstract quality of this because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think you're right. Like it invites you to make no assumptions and to just lean back and enjoy the language. Yeah, I enjoy so much of this. And like even the choices, the speaker is debating because of um, the questions and the uh, white space between the lines. Like we've just met, should we move to Ensenada or should I just borrow a pin? It's like, what and I like a whiplash for the for me personally as a reader I'm just like oh my goodness there's a whole universe in those two lines that are like well yeah I mean it, it brings long. to mind <laughs> it brings to mind what's at stake when you meet someone mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. and what what's really on the line in a chance encounter what could happen mm. 
you know, I think about this kind of thing all the time, you know, like when I sit, when I'm sitting next to someone on an airplane, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they tell me the story of how they met their wife at a laundromat, you know, and then I go, Oh, like I've been to laundromats so many times and talked to strangers and none of them have changed my life. I am very disappointed in you laundromat strangers. Um, you know, but for someone else, yeah. that a, a chance encounter in that space led to something that is utterly life altering, like you said, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Although, okay, just to transition a hair, some of the things that I loved about this poem are moments like, I'd rather sit a kiss than you would, right? And yeah. turning sit into a different kind of verb, right? Because right. you sit is not a transitive verb. You don't sit a thing, right? You, I'd rather you sit, sit a kiss. Yeah. You sit down or you sit on, right. But usually sit is considered to be kind of like, it's an active verb, but it's intransitive. There's, there's no object to it, right. Mm -hmm. You sit in a chair on a chair, like the preposition sort of does that function. And so to get to this, like, I'd rather sit a kiss than you would is mm -hmm. fascinating because I both instinctively understand what it is to sit a kiss in a way. And yet I couldn't tell you what that means at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I love that too, because in my, when I originally heard it, I thought um, the speaker or the line was, I'd rather sit and like sit and kiss, like sit and kiss. And I was like, oh yeah, of course. Like I'd rather do that as well. <laughs> but like now I'm just like sitting here and just like, went huh, unintended. Is that a pun? I don't know. <laughs> sit and sit a kiss sit and kiss. Yeah. yeah. I'd rather sit a kiss like, yeah. <laughs> than you would. And then my fist is like a kiss. Um, and so, I also yeah. Have, like kiss me or I'll cut you. And like, I've <laughs> felt, I felt, I feel that <laughs> like, I feel that so many times. Like, <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. We can get t-shirts made, Carla. Kiss I want a t-shirt that like, says what? kiss me or I'll cut you. Yeah, no, I can. Uh, uh, I got, I, I know a printer. Mister. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, right. The, um, addressing somebody as like Mr. And there is like, um, endearing quality to that. And there's also like, like a, distance right like a stranger oh absolutely like mr who is like a, a mr times trusting. two what is a mr yeah. times two <laughs> i'm not saying i get i don't i imagine that's, that that's like if your name is mr so then you're like mr mm. mr oh a mr that misses right and like yeah. that's the um the mystery you know look at you no, absolutely. It reminds me of um, Lee Young Lee mm-hmm. um, in The City With Which I Love You. Uh, there's a line that I'm going to butcher terribly, but it's like misdates and mistakes and mistakes. Mm-hmm. Like that kind of language play is happening. And so to have the Mr. Who Misses, right? And that that is a pun. Um <laughs> On Mrs. versus, you know, the Mrs., the wife, mm-hmm. uh, right? And mm-hmm. so that's very playful as well. Um, you know, and then there's Mrs. like, I miss you, like I'm lonely. But then there's like Mrs. like inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like they miss the mark. Um, and so, yeah, no, there's a lot. There's a lot to mine just yeah. in one poem, mm. uh, which I would say is the mark of, you know, some good. <laughs> Something very good, yeah. So you want to uh, listen to yeah, some 
some more somethings and some more good? Absolutely. Hit me. This is one of the little poems. Little day. This is what it comes down to. Me on a park bench, always writing. This is what it comes down to. Okay, this is a poem. It's also um, for my friend um, Jake that passed away. And yeah. A little distantly, as one should. One, I keep wanting to write about accidents and how I hate them. And it's so obvious. Everyone hates accidents. So instead, I've been watching my neighbors set up their picnic table and tent. Do you call it a cabana? The man is wearing a bandana and a leather vest without a shirt, a look I've never learned to appreciate, even though I am from California. The woman looks like that bartender Kim, but younger. I've overheard that they're expecting company in approximately 45 minutes. I have noted the time. I am excited for them. It's hard to be excited for things, not the same way as I used to, or maybe it's just that I don't get stoned anymore. Jake and I used to listen to this Neil Young album in my old apartment over and over again for hours. Every time I tell someone he's died, that's the same image popping into my head. He's sitting on the windowsill with the light behind him so you can't see his face. I'm very aware that he is younger than me. He wasn't stoned. Jake was a good kid. My friend all the time says, I'm so excited. And when I ask her for what, she just shrugs and says, aren't you? I suppose so. Yes. Two. Up on a mountain near Lake Tahoe, I once fell in love with a boy named Billy, or was it Bobby? I was 13 and he was humoring me. I needed humoring. We had driven to the campground in a huge blue station wagon my dad had rented on account of our gear. It felt unsafe. Station wagons, for all their air of safety, always feel unsafe to me. The way nuclear family should sound comforting, and yet it only ever sounds like something that's going to explode. If you've ever driven to Lake Tahoe, you know the roads, long curving gray snakes of pavement edged by mountains and those drop-offs. I hated them, still do. But when you have to get somewhere, you drive on them. I have to tell myself this all the time. You can't really stop going places because you're frightened. It's like that road sign. That's the image of rocks falling down a mountain onto the road. I never knew what you were supposed to do about that. Duck? Is it saying that inevitably a rock will fall on you? Is this a good thing to know this? I am obviously unsure of the usefulness of inedible, inevitable things. Even the word inevitable is awkward and hard to spell. I never kiss Bobby or anything, although I probably should have. Sometimes I think the memory of an event is better than the event itself. The way the retelling of something is satisfying. That's why it's so unsettling when I can't remember everything in detail. 
I want to remember the exact song that my brother and I were singing in the back of the seat of that rented station wagon. All I keep thinking of is Respect by Aretha Franklin. I can't imagine that's what we were singing, but maybe that's why it stands out. It was unusual, like the car and the roads. I can convince myself of anything. My neighbors, the my there is so endearing, it makes me love them have finished with their cabana and the Kim lady is power washing the chairs. They're laughing and getting along well. She doesn't mind his best. Now, I'm almost positive it was respect. Seeing them in print can help the facts become fact. When I think about it, I would like to go back to Lake Tahoe when it's warm out and swim. That's where Jake was when he died. The car went off one of those roads I mentioned earlier. I was going to tell you then, but it was strange to write it down. But now the guests have arrived. They were 21 minutes late. The vest is lighting the barbecue and one woman is pregnant and in overalls. The whole thing is so domestic and soft, you could almost wear it. Four. I have gone out to the fire escape and come back now to sit at my desk. I wanted to be with my neighbors for a while. The Kim lady waved and I waved back a little distantly as one should, as if I cared only a little, as if they were only a fleeting thought and me simply a body on a windowsill passing through. Um, that was for Jake. It's good to think about him. Whew. Um, okay, let's see. This book. Um, just a few more. Uh, this poem, uh, actually, I got this horoscope. And so uh, I wrote this poem based on this horoscope. And I also think that for those of us who've had names that have been mispronounced your whole life, um, I think that that I think that's what the ending is about here, is about um, those of us with names that have never been said correctly, um, except by except for those of us that you know, by those that love us and care. Farmer's Almanac. According to the Farmer's Almanac. The best day to slaughter animals is the 25th of this month. And all my horoscope said today was, hooray for the differently sane. The country I occupy is different than yours, but we both pretended the vegetable steamer was a spaceship at one point or another, and I watched it real fly into the kitchen. My brother once pounded nails into the wood garden fence in the shape of a hot rod and then drove a hot rod inside of it. It was a hot rod inside of a hot rod. And I fell in love with men forever. You there, I am collapsing. Is it as adorable as it feels? Sincerity is what my meal is made out of. July 1st will be the best day to eat a meal of sincerity. At the dinner table, I still sit on my knees like I'm praying all the time for more trouble. 
1,000 toothpicks represent 1,000 soldiers in this child's history report. 1,000 toothpicks represent only 1,000 toothpicks in this report, but they still cannot stop gravity from burying the things it tugs. According to the Farmer's Almanac, this month I am one more than falling down. I am downfalling. I am catchless. To manage to miss things is an improbable act. To refer to people as things proves that I miss more of myself than of others. According to the Farmer's Almanac, the master of invisibility finds himself dining too often alone. In my country, exploding things come from the inside like a sparkler and everyone notices and wants to warm their hands on your burning body. If I meet you again, Let's make inappropriate sounds all over town. And by inappropriate, I mean the sounds of our names. Um, here's a, this is a very little one. Little obsession. I'm not obsessing. I am just sitting here perforating this post-it with a pushpin. Um, I always think of Dean Valentine because on her little note on the manuscript, which I still have downstairs in uh, in my box, in the box of letters, um, she loved that little pushpin poem. I'm looking for a particular poem. It's funny how this happens after you have it. You're like, oh, there they are. Um, this is a poem I wrote um, shortly after September 11th, and it was also a time when the bar that we went to all the time, uh, the Turkey's Nest, had a lot of firemen that came by, and our local uh, fire station lost quite a few men on September 11th, and this is um, a poem about witnessing the off-duty firemen. The firemen are dancing. I am running my fingers through the rough knotted hole on the edge of the stained oak bar table. It looks like it could be an eye hole. And I think it would be the scariest thing in the world if I were an ant, a hole where the bottom drops out, just like that, onto the floor. I don't want to drink tonight. Or if I do, I want to drink a lot enough to lie down on the ash blackened floor and watch everything through that eye hole. Everyone is talking about parties. The vice cop keeps looking at the guy we call Red and that's fine by me because I don't like him, never have. Oh, and the firemen are dancing. My favorite part is how they are dancing so close. One is pulling the other to his hip, and one with the hat is laughing and tossing his head back as if they were 17, or even as if they were alone. And it's okay that I don't have a specific you right now. And it's okay that I'm not sure who this you I am speaking to is anymore. The firemen are dancing and one of them has leaned his head on the other's blue shoulder, and the ones at the window are singing and watching with big, lovely firemen smiles. And it's okay that you weren't here to see it. I'm going to tell you all about it, even if you never ask, 
I will. And I guess I will close with a short poem. Uh, this is a true story um, at my friend's house, finding all of her father's Playboy magazines. And instead of being sort of horrified by them, I thought it was like the most amazing career <laughs> that these women had. That's, that's probably why I'm a poet. Centerfold. Crouched in the corner of the barn, we sat with the cedar chest splayed and the magazines laid out in perfect piles. I was the first to reach the centerfold and together we stared. These women, these giantesses folded over couches on bare rugs or steel bars, their bodies so slick they could slip through the pages and then through your fingers. One in particular was my favorite, with her left leg perched on a ballet bar and her hair piled around her shoulders. I thought she must be famous. I thought how lovely it would be to be her, to be naked all the time and dancing. Thank you. Let's start with Lucky Wreck. How well, awesome is it to have a 15 year retrospective on your very first book? And what did that feel like? I never thought that that would happen, first of all. Um, <laughs> and it's so, I think one of the things I um, had even mentioned in the foreword when I wrote the foreword was um, that really rereading it, like deeply rereading re it was sort of terrifying. And I kept thinking like, what am I going to find in this book that is going to be embarrassing? Um, it's going to be so like unaligned with who I am today, all of these things. And I was actually really surprised by how much of it was me. And I remember thinking like, oh, there really is a core to us, to many of us that continues. So sort of like, an essential self, right? Yeah. Like a core sense. So wait, so in those 15 years, you were just like, okay, done. I will not look at you. I think, you know, I read from the book a lot when it came out and, you know, I toured with it and all that kind of stuff, but then, you know, released another book and I released another book and I released another book and, you know, now I'm on number six. And so I think it's not that you forget about those poems. It's just that you're not living with them, you know, mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis. You're not living with them on the road, et cetera. And um, it was like looking through a picture album and seeing like, oh, right, I remember that. And I remember that experience. And yeah, it felt really, it felt really close to me, you know, because the self isn't something I feel like I can point to or I can say, oh, this is where I am or, you know, this sort of whatever that is. And so it's so interesting to see it on the page. Yeah, because that is uh, it's like time travel. <laughs> yes, it is, though. It is absolutely. And it feels like, oh, I'm just going with myself to my other self. And, um, yes. you know, it's it, and that I think is like I just I, you know, not I, I don't know if it's only artists that get to have that experience, but it does feel like, oh, this must be like, I can't imagine like a painter's retrospective or putting that together and how bizarre that must feel for them to go through stages of their art together or, you know, and it's like, that's how it felt a little bit like, oh, this is time travel. This is, this is real. Do you ever find people like 
horribly misinterpreting because there is such an abstract quality to your poetry. Do you ever find when people are discussing your poetry or asking you questions about your poetry that you're like, no, that's not it at all? Or yeah, you- I mean, I, I think that definitely happens. Um, for the most part, I'm usually just amused by it. You know, I mean, I think that's one of the things I love about poetry is that it makes space for the reader. So the reader can have a transformative experience that may or may not be what the poet intended. I've always loved that. I think that's one of the reasons that we leave those, you know, we have breath in it. We have sejuras and line breaks and stanza breaks so that someone can walk in. And, um, but I have had a couple of people say like, oh, well, this is about this. And I'm like, hmm, like, and you can see, and you, it's so hard. I don't want to tell them they're wrong. Right. Like, I just like, I'm so glad you read it and you experienced that way. And this is how you felt, you know, yes. that it's not so much that they've, um, they've read the poem, but they've like figured it out. And like, they've, you know, it's like they're, um, it's the Da Vinci code and they've suddenly like figured out that, you know, what you're talking about is like cannibalism or something. And you're like, no, that is not what that poem is about at all. <laughs> that just that just makes me think of like QAnon people who are like, see how it's named COVID-19. Ovid is for sheep. <laughs> you know, like that kind of um like that mysterious, like as if I'm hiding these things in the poem. And sometimes, you know, yes, there are things that are like, I am there, they're there for me. I know that they're there. But they're not like these uh <laughs> you know, Easter eggs. Every poem is an escape room. Yes. And yes. if you if you can uncover all the things in it, you have beat the poem. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because if you meet with, you know, poets in their 80s and, and talk about poems, they'll be like, well, I don't know. I, I like to think of it this way, but it could be this way, you know, like I oh, feel yeah. like, like the older poets, you know, are are like the possibilities are endless and there's no certainty about anything. But- I believe that like the more poetry I read and the more poetry I think about, the less I can tell you what a poem is. Yes, totally. Every day down to write a poem, I think, I don't know what a poem is. Yeah. Like what is a poem? And people be like, uh, shouldn't you know what that is? And I'm like, no, but it's, it is sort of wonderful because the more you read it, the more you spend time with poetry, like the more faith I have in it and the more Mm. mysterious I find it. So it's it's pretty much like Jesus. <laughs> this is what you're saying. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I feel like one of the things that I love about um, it is that it is exactly what you just talked about, where you can sit around with a group of poets and literally have someone ask you, like, what is a poem? And everyone will be like, oh, <laughs> It's like, here are people who've been writing for 30, 40, 50 years. And they're just like, hmm, language. Oh, what is a poem? <laughs> it uses language. Yeah. Well, it's like, sometimes it's like small, but sometimes it's long. Definitely not prose. Yeah. But sometimes. Some, but it also prose. sometimes is prose. <laughs> You can read it in one sitting, except when you can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's meant to be read at one poem at a time, unless it's a sequence and you're supposed to read them all at once. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, it's like, yeah, we can it's, just it's self-contained unless it's not. Unless it's part of a series. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And we just must frustrate the hell out of people because I'm sure 
people oh, yeah. are like, I mean, these people, these poets don't even know what a poem is. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. No. And then you got people talking about like the hyper archive and digital poetry. And then you're oh, sitting right. there going, why yeah. not? <laughs> and like the found poet people and the concrete poet people and like people who are like, this is a poem. And <laughs> you're like, okay. So, I, uh, I I can't even argue with you. We're because... we're in our Duchamp era, yes. <laughs> working through the urinals of poetry. Yep. Oh, I, it's incredible. And so you know, I think it's it's so wonderful when there are poets who, in the midst of all the possibility and of all the discourse of what a poem can be, are able to retain voice and are able to retain identity. Mm. Right. And oh, what did I write down? Identity being an instrument of my behavior. Mm. Which I was like, oh, oh, because there's a lot to unpack in terms of your identity. Right. And so I, I thought maybe like, let's touch on that um, a little bit and how identity and, you know, people saying your name, right. And people trying to ask you, I am sure just because I have searched your name on the internet, people wanting to look for or have the answer or decode you and your yeah. cultural background. Yeah. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I guess we all do it, right. It's that sort of like, what category are you? How can I think of you? Are you different than me? Are you like me? Like all of these things. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, my grandfather's from Mexico. Um, so I'm part Mexican. He's a Puripecha tribe, otherwise known as Tarascan. Um, and, uh, that I'm also like Irish and Scottish. So I'm also like all of these other things, but I was at a poetry place Ooh, okay. <laughs> and I was giving, it was a sort of a book club and I was visiting the book club and one woman approached me, um, to the white woman and she approached me and said like, you know, how come you never talk about your identity? It's not all any, anywhere on this book. And, mm-hmm. all, and it was, it was very accusatory. And I was like, and there was a, another Latinx woman in the room and she said, her identity is all over this book. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, like she's, it's in every, like it's in all the poems with Natalie Diaz. It's in contract says it's in like, it's everywhere. It's just who she is. And, it, and we just realized that this woman really didn't feel like I was talking about my identity in the way that she wanted me to talk about my identity. Oh, she wanted a poem where you were like, I'm so conflicted over my Mexican, whatever, uh-huh. whatever, Aztec, yeah. Aztec. And I, you know, and it was like the the way that she spoke to me was so condescending. And I was really grateful for, you know, a couple of the other people in the class kind of like body checking her a little bit, being like, hey, let's let's move back a little bit. She not only did she want me to talk about my identity in a way that she understood that was easily categorized by her, but also in a way that dealt with the tropes that she wanted wanted to talk about. Right. Like, where is your abuelita? Where is your you know X, Y, Z that I am like, this is what you're talking about. And right. why, was, why are you reading this in a month that is not September slash October? Right. Slash October, because that's how we roll. Because we don't um, get an actual full month. <laughs> we get two mid months. But it did feel like this weird, like, oh, like I am not in a container that suits you. Like, this is exactly the reason I write the way that I do in so many ways is that I am like, as soon as someone tells me that I have to do this, or that I can't do that, I'm immediately all elbows. And I'm like, I will do anything but that. <laughs> yeah, I, but I think that's understandable. And I th- I think that's part of the reason I really like the line is identity is, a, you know, an important instrument 
but it's yeah. not, it's not like the all be all end all, even though, you know, you do talk about like sort of not being just before that, but, yeah. But, yeah. but it is still a tool. It is an instrument. It is something that you are in charge of sort of like how you use it to open, you know, doors and locks, if you will. Right. Yeah. And I, I thought that was so empowering in a, in a way that I find that non-white poets have to deal with this. Yeah. Um, because we all, live in all a the time. But then also when does like someone working towards representation feel like tokenism? When does it feel like, oh, I'm really here because you needed something to to fill this, you know, this, this slot, you know, whatever. It it is September 16th. (laughs) And we would like for you to read. And I feel like that's um, the nuance of it is intense. Have you ever read in Mexico? No, I never have. No, I've read in um, South America Three times, but I have never read in my. So, what was it like? What kind of reception? It's wonderful. I mean, it's the the South American literary culture is really marvelous. I mean, it's different in Chile, and you know, it's different in Argentina. It's different in Rio. But like, I think there's like, I mean, let's face it. I think that we we always think that poetry takes place in the United States. And it doesn't. I mean, there's just such a huge, particularly Latin America, like work and legacy. That's really phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to be a poet in those places is really profound in some ways. It's really important. And I think it's also more political. I feel like it's more political. There's a more, there's a more, a deeper reverence for it. And like it's in, it's important and it you, you feel that weight of history you feel that the heft of the legacy on you and it, you know it's that is really interesting and it's funny cuz here we are in the US and like we do feel that to a certain extent right we think oh yeah we've got we're thinking about Langston Hughes we're thinking about Phyllis Wheatley we're thinking about Whitman we're thinking about Dickinson we're thinking about all these things but at the same time, there's a little bit more of like, oh, you know, I can get up there and, and perform and do this thing. Whereas in, I felt like in the Latin America, there was much more of like, okay, this is like, now it's time for poetry. And mm-hmm. it felt like really kind of shiver inducing, um, electric, profund- a profundity. Yeah. That I yeah. don't, I don't necessarily always feel within the confines of the United States. The one thing I will say is that I do feel like within like, I mean, when I was in New York, you know, for 12 years or whatever, I mean, the Bowery Poetry Club was, you know, and New York going strong. Those communities, like they were like the, my lifeblood when I lived in New York, because you'd go to your workshop and you'd kind of feel like, oh, poetry, it's so hard and all this stuff. And then you'd, you'd get to slams and you'd be like no this is it like this is like it's fun it's this is life like this feels like and it is that kind of importance and that um that's you know that spiritual connection to the performance on the page and i I love that and i I remember one time touring with um not really touring but uh we we gave a couple readings together ross gay and i and Mm -hmm. ross was um (laughs) we were interviewed for sort of a large television station. And he said the, the first, the, the interviewer said, you know, so, you know, everyone says that poetry is dead and it's not really popular and all this stuff. And Ross just wouldn't take it. He said, well, it's not in my, it's not in my community. Um, is it dead in your community? <laughs> no, but you know what? Like I literally just did an interview with Pittsburgh magazine and the framing question was, you know, like is poetry dead? And I was just, I, I was like, well, maybe I think like academic poetry. 
But even that, I mean, I don't person who reads a ton of academic poetry. Of course, like you're like, no, it's not. Like, <laughs> it's just so. But it's a weird thing. But I, I always love that response. Like Ross was just like, no. Is it done like, in your community? Yeah, like he's like because I walk down the streets and like it's being read at the bars. It's being read, like this is like, you know. And I do feel like I grew up in that way, like where poetry was all around. I worked at a bookstore. I mean, there was, you know, there were readings happening all the time, and um, and I still feel that way. And so uh, mm. I don't know. There's still there still does feel like there's a little division between the academic world and and the poetry world that's in the community. And oh, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think there's some I, people- And I would like to see that shift. I feel like it's, to me, I feel like it's shifting somewhat, but I do feel like it. there's a, there's still a, um, a strange divided line that uh, makes no sense to me. Maybe it's more of a continuum now, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. Like there are people who exist in that. Yeah. There's people like Denise Smith or like, you know, Mahogany Brown who can, you know, or Hanif of Dura Cube, mm-hmm. yeah. right. Who can speak to both communities and who have that kind of mm-hmm. like hybrid appeal. Um, you know, Franny Choi, I think would be another great example yeah. of that. Um, and who can like perform the hell out of a poem, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. You, for example, um, can do both. And I think mm-hmm. that love of slam and that love of performance is very evident. Um, but then I would say there's, you know, like the stuffies still exist on both sides, right? Like yeah. people who are pure, like street poetics, you know, mm-hmm. and are straight out of their communities. Mm-hmm. And then there are people who are straight out of like, you know, only reading Emily Dickinson in the dark. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, there's still, I, mean, I went to, I went to graduate school with a, a lovely older gentleman that was said he had 10 books and he would read them and he would, you know, if we put them on this side of, of the, of the desk and then he reread them and start again and put them on the other side of the desk. And, it, and that's, that was his, like, but it's it, according to him, it was like the best work, you know, and it was like Whitman and Dickinson. And it's like saying you only watch four movies. Yeah. I mean, it was, but it was that kind of deep constraint, not only in what a poem could do in its possibilities when you were writing it, but what a, po- a poem could be as you were reading it, like, yeah, that, but, that but see, like, so, but see, like, so interesting. <laughs> the fact that that's like something you can say out loud without shame or embarrassment is wild to me. Because if I said like, oh, I only listen to Wagner, mm-hmm. that's the only music worth listening to. Right. Everyone would look at me and be like, uh, also, there's the entire history of popular music, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I, well, but I think there was a value judgment in what he was saying. I mean, I think he might not have even known it, but I think he was saying this is the best work, and this is where I will spend my time. But see, that's such a turnoff to the normal person. I'm not even saying like even if you're like that exact guy, even if you're like a seven year old white dude, right? Mm-hmm. Like the seven year old white dudes I know, like my father in law. He reads you. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. He does. He loves you too. He texts me about it too. Cool. Be like, I love that. He does. That. He does. I told him I was interviewing you. He's very excited. Yay. Uh, but you know what I mean? So like, I don't think it's even reflective of what like actual people who read poetry. Yeah. I know. How they're I even like engaging. Think, I do think it's, it's it, there's also that kind of fear, right? Because I think... I think so many of our sort of poor choices we make in the literary world is, is that a fear? Is that like, oh, okay, well, if I, 
attempt something, I'll fail. Or if I don't know this, I'll fail. Or it's all about like looking like a fool or, you know, all these things. And it's like, I mean, risk it, right? Like, I mean, that man didn't want to risk anything in his own writing and he didn't want to risk anything in his own reading. And for me, all I want to do is risk. how How can you be a poet without risk? Yeah. And how can you like, I mean, how can you make things like, like not even poetry, just create um, without risking some part of yourself that may or may not fall flat on your face. And I'm a faller. So I I fall flat. But I think it's, I think it's absolutely true. Like, I think when you're learning, you know, I'm thinking about how, like, I'm learning to draw and I can't draw. Um, (laughs) So I'm learning kind of how to paint and I'm, you know, I'm playing because I, there's something I want to say or do, and I don't know what it is yet. Um, And I, I, I went to this, like, nude painting class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I, I painted this like kind of like hot orange thing that was just like in my soul and it was focused on this one part of the woman or whatever. Um, and then I walked around the room and there were so many people drawing the exact same thing mm-hmm. and painting it the exact same way, like yeah. trying to do a form of like realism and just kind of trying to get it exactly as it was. Yeah. You know, and I just remember like turning to the people I was with and being like, I must be like a crazy person. <laughs> like right. if this was a psychological study, you would just be like, Oh, like this person is an elder, like four of us that didn't do the same thing, but 20 just did the exact same things. Mm-hmm. You know, and for me, all of the reward is in the risk, mm-hmm. right? Is in doing the weird thing. Cause I don't want to walk away with something that looks like something that everyone has done. Right. And yet I feel that people find comfort in not taking risks mm-hmm. while still yeah. wanting to make art. I how mean, is that possible? I don't, I don't know how you are still interested in making art. I guess for me, that would be the question is like, if I wasn't risking something, I don't think I would make more books. I mean, right. Cause I'd be like, well, I, I did that already. Or, you know, like this is like, I'm, I want each of my books to be, to have a whole life of their own and to have their own in some ways identity. That's different. It's beyond me. I think and, maybe, maybe you have to be smart enough to know what's different about you. Mm. I don't know. Maybe there's also a, a sort of element of release, an element of surrender. Mm. Also, that it's not um, we have to give up our control, and that's really hard in a world where there's so little that we can control, and there's so much we don't know, and so much is painful that I feel like we hold on to anything that we can somehow shape and perfect and mold into something that we can understand. And I really understand that instinct, but I also feel like as I age, I'm just more and more interested into, to sort of receiving and fi- figuring out what comes and what what's interesting and, and not necessarily molding it and shaping it into something that's containable or understandable or um, perfect. Uh, like I always love how Douglas Kearney talks about not perfecting a poem, but distressing a poem, mm. you know, like, what is it to like rough it up and like, get it like, like to draw, you know, pull a Brillo pad out and like scrub it and like, you know, what is, and make its rough edges. And I think, I think sometimes we lose track of that. We lose sight of that because we're so interested in being like, well, use a couplet here. Why would you use a tercet here? You know? And it was like, well, because 
I, I wanted two lines there and I wanted three lines here. <laughs> yeah, because I am the master of my form. <laughs> because that's what happened, because that's what the poem wanted, you know? Yeah. What is it to not um, be so in control? I mean, I think I think there's something delightful about that because it sort of imagines the poem itself as being sort of, I mean, in some ways like sui generis, like it just kind of the poem is the self-created, self-embodying thing. And well, you're yeah, like I mean, a vessel in some the, ways. I mean, I think the poem, I, mean, I think we're working in tandem, but I think the poem is always smarter than I am. I mean, there's something the poem knows. Like if I'm working towards something like the, the Ada ego, you know, can be like, no, this is, I wanted to write about this and this is where I wanted to go. And usually mm-hmm. the poem, you know, if it's really listening to the voice underneath the voice that, you know, the, the self that's not self, that is telling me something else, which is usually something I am completely unaware is coming. And then I'm like, oh, damn. <laughs> oh, that's what you wanted to tell me, or that's what's been going on with you. I love that experience. Like that to me is like the most pleasurable part of making is when the poem just tells me something. And I'm like, I did not expect that. (laughs) No. And I think what you're describing is a beautiful dance, which is great because dancing comes up a lot in your poetry and it makes me very happy. I love dancing. So absolutely. I love little motifs like that, that I'm like, "Mm." But it's fascinating to me. And maybe this is the poet in me going, oh, but it it really comes down to language. Like all of these arguments, all of these issues of, you know, who like bears an identity, Mm -hmm. right? Really come down to the language we use as if that is some kind of shibboleth saying, okay, now we know what you are because, you know, like now we know what you are because you say crispetas or you're a palomitas person. Mm -hmm. Right. And and so you you say Latinx or you say Mexican or you say, yeah. So really what I want to know is, uh, is language the death of us? (laughs) I think that one of the things that I know about language is that It's incredible and I'm grateful for it. And it can be mercurial and miraculous. um, And it fails every single day. And it will continue to fail every single second, every single day. And um, I think the poet's work is to recognize that failure, you know? Mm. And I, I think that when we recognize that we're working not just with language, but with breath and with silence. I mean, I think that's why I love poetry so much is that it recognizes that failure and it recognizes the importance of space between the language, between words. Well, hot damn, that was just a great answer. I was wondering. I believe it. <laughs> no, I, I believe. I believe how much you believe that. I believe it in my heart. <laughs> you know what? Church, testify. <laughs> I'll say in Spanish, testigo, testigo. <laughs> now we know I mean it. <laughs> yes. So, wow, we just heard an incredible reading, an incredible interview with the one and only Ada Limon. So excited to uh, have her on the podcast. Um, So, Adriana, can I ask you, 
Yes. What is a poem? <laughs> I'm just like overwhelmed by this concept. We will never know. We will never we'll, know. We never know. No, yeah. we'll just, you know what? I think at this point you could pretty much hold up like any object in your room and say, this is a poem. And I'd be mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. correct, correct. <laughs> yeah. Like an experience is a poem. Why Recording not? Is a poem. That Very bird. Abstract. Yeah. 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 Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, like looking out into like this post-it note is a poem. It could be, um, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, yeah, no, I mean, obviously like hopefully we can distinguish between mashed potatoes and poetry, but maybe not, you know, I've had mashed potatoes that were ugh, poetry in yeah, my mouth. Yes. So <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> That's so real. And I think as poets, right? Um, and I've had this kind of like conversation with a couple poets these days that are like, okay, so you're like, we're like self-proclaimed. This is our identity. This is like what drives us, you know, um, in our lives. And where I'm noticing, you know, like poetry in a lot of things, like poetry in some a conversation my friend is talking about of a crazy night out or there's there's yeah like you said there's poetry in like the in your mouth with like your sensory with your tongue and what you're tasting yeah. like that's oh and like I went to a show the other night and like that was poetry of beautiful musicians and um and but but so besides but like we have to be careful tra- the training of what we've been like yeah conditioned like what is a I poem? mean like all right. So now let me, let me go back to the other side. Let me devil's advocate this and argue for the other side. Words have meanings, damn it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we say everything is poetry, then nothing is poetry at the same time. Ooh, and poetry, <laughs> right? No, I'm just saying, I'm, saying, I'm arguing against myself here, right? Yeah. But, you know, it matters that words have meanings and it matters mm-hmm. that we, you know, are able to point at something and actually say this is a poem, right? Um, you know, obviously my true self believes that taxonomy is sort of dumb, but also I understand why as human beings, the same way we like to categorize for identity, the same way we like to categorize, you know, for, um, you know, what your title is, what your job is, what your duties are, you know, the way we sort of like to have clear boundaries and parameters. We also like to have clear definitions. And so to say, okay, a poem is a written object that is focused on language and does not necessarily put narrative at Mm -hmm. the front you know like it can have narrative but narrative is not its chief concern Mm -hmm. language is or expression is and and that's probably the closest like if you like like to actually legitimately and seriously answer your question that's probably what i would say um even though i could swirl around a thousand exceptions right now yeah (laughs) i you know but generally speaking you know, that's what it is. But I also understand that blurring the lines is like something that accounts a lot more for reality, mm. right? Nothing is one hard definition of thing, especially something as abstract as the concept of poetry or right. let's say the concept of woman, 
Mm-hmm. I've been, yeah, debating in my head, like, so I totally agree that, um, well, okay, let me start over. Like, humans are very simple in a way and there's just like our brains need to categorize things and that's why we label things and that's why yeah we just put things in an order right but back to the the poems and like but even in the word authenticity um it's really interesting too because i think ada talks about um voice right and she's you all talked about in the interview like like she's not sure what like that voice is that identity is but yet she sees it in the page and yet Mm -hmm. all of the readers and all her fans and all her followers like we're just like yeah this is Ada's work and we can recognize it on the page and recognize it in the readings that she gives and there's a very much an identity there um Mm -hmm. but it can't necessarily be categorized but I mean after what six plus books we can kind of put her in a little box but I don't want to um no but I I think that uh, there's something beautiful about that right yeah I think the fact that like I can read a paragraph of writing most of the time and know if I wrote it or not Mm -hmm. um just because there are word choices that I go back to there are certain phrases there are certain ways of thinking there are certain Mm -hmm. rhythms like to how I talk yeah you know so like I can always I can always find myself on the page um you know it's like sort of how you know your own handwriting so well Mm-hmm. And so even when you were trying to forge someone else's handwriting, you can tell it's yours because <laughs> yeah. you know your handwriting. <laughs> and I love how other people too can, like it happened to me last night, like my friends, like she was telling me about a story and I was there and I said something and I was like, oh yeah, that does sound like something I would say, even though I totally don't remember yeah. <laughs> what you're talking about. And you about. know that, you know, and then the yeah. same with the opposite, right? You know, if somebody mm-hmm. quotes you back at you're like, I would never say that ever. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there's something about knowing yourself and knowing yourself mm-hmm. on the page and knowing your, your voice that I mm-hmm. think is really important. And that, you know, I think Ada's voice is distinctive as hell, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I also think that it's not like, it's not weird or strange. It's just her, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and it's, it's consistent choices. It's, you know, the little, um, you know, rhetorical questions. Um, it's the way the line breaks are functioning and the way they do yeah. actually correlate to how she reads. Um, you yeah. know, it's a lot of small choices like that. And also yeah. that you can hear her, like after having heard her read poems, you can almost hear her in your head as mm-hmm. you're physically reading. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. That's a great quality to have, you know? What more can I add uh, other than, well, what are you reading? What are you reading? (laughs) (laughs) What I love. Oh, what if, well, I know we talked a lot about um, like, what is poetry? Like, what is a poem? And then like decoding poetry. And it's interesting, even just um, rephrasing that question. Like, what are you reading? Like, what are you decoding? What are you? What are you decoding? Uh, I Um, can go first if you want. Yeah, go ahead. So I just finished reading Melissa Chadburn's A Tiny Upward Shove, which is a novel. Mm. And it is, 
all of that, but more um, mm -hmm. <laughs> in a way. But it begins with this idea of the Filipino Aswang, which is kind of like a witch, but kind of like a spirit, but kind of like a demon and kind of like a revenge monster, but also Ooh. this thing that's like going to get you. Mm -hmm. um, and how it emerges, you know, after seven generations of being in this woman's family, in this woman, as she is dying, she calls this thing and it wow. embodies her and um, it emerges to avenge uh, essentially her life and the concept of what that avenging looks like sort of shifts as the novel progresses. But uh I, that, that doesn't even begin to describe the book. I like somebody's reading it right now, probably going like, yeah, good job. That's the first page. Um, <laughs> but, like this thing is incredible. Um, yeah. I strongly urge you to check it out. A tiny upward shove by Melissa Chadburn. Okay, cool. Thanks for that. Um, I'm reading Your a turn. couple of things as per usual. Um, okay. So Marvel comics, I'm, such a novice for, for like yeah. that whole thing but um i was recently gifted um the america chavez yeah um, you were what's up what's that yeah so queer latina representation as a superhero in this um i'm like pretty cool comic book you're like yeah, and the, you're like discovering comics and i'm discovering i, comics. I, lo I love comics oh tell and, me more <laughs> okay yeah we can um definitely dive deep into that and and so in in parallel to getting introduced to marvel comics and america chavez and so i had um i was gifted two um issues and apparently i read them out of order so I, because <laughs> I didn't know there was an order. So the origin <laughs> story. So yeah. So America Chavez, badass babe. But uh, so Ada's uh, lucky wreck is out of Autumn House Press, and coincidentally, I'm reading um, Eric Tran, the Gutter Spread Guide to Prayer, which has, which is also Autumn House Press, but is also very much influenced by. Um, comics and the kind of like the you can kind of see here like the frames that he's using and even the font is very like comic book style ah. um, and he or i'm sorry they um reference a lot of comics on here so it's and poetry kinda, but it's the poetry aesthetic of the book itself yeah is kind of embracing the comic book genre yeah i love like street art and um urinal or not even urinal but like <laughs> you're bathroom, like, like i just love stalls. urinals <laughs> i just love oh god no it's honestly the worst thing ever but um <laughs> like bathroom stall poetry and like graffiti and like the urban you know edginess of poetry and all of us poets you're just backing up over there i still haven't recovered from my love urinals <laughs> yeah, I know. do not put oh. me on that let's end all it. right i think on that note oh we're yeah. we're ending on that note but we're it's gonna be that. it's no. it's in the episode now <laughs> damn it <laughs> Asterix is a transnational feminist literary arts journal, co-founded by Angie Cruz and Adriana E. Ramirez. 
committed to social justice and translation, placing women of color at the center of the conversation. City of Asylum builds a just community by protecting and celebrating creative free expression. Charla Cultural is hosted by Adriana I. Ramirez and Carla Lamb. Voice of Goddess and Master of the Archive is Alexis Jabour. Angie Cruz is our advisor and spiritual guide. Transcript support is provided by Clarissa A. Leon. Jesse Welch serves as our production and editorial assistant. Our production design and brand management is done by Little Owl Creative. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Asterix Journal and City of Asylum.